In early 2020, the world looked to science to solve the COVID-19 pandemic. AstraZeneca, Pfizer, Moderna, Sinovac. These COVID-19 vaccines have now become part of our everyday conversation. We shorten AstraZeneca to AZ, debate their efficacy, question who is eligible for what. And since the first alarm was sounded about this contagious virus, vaccines have dominated our news cycle. One thing that's been done, new vaccines in the past, and I have direct experience of this with Ebola in the West African country of Guinea, is something called ring vaccination. So when some cases emerge, as they did in the northern beaches, then you can start vaccinating people around where those cases have occurred. And that's been very effective. It was certainly effective with Ebola. In fact, it basically eliminated the disease in that country. As Australia grapples with containing outbreaks of COVID-19, these vaccines offer a glimmer of hope for all of us, a COVID-safe life, especially when everyone is vulnerable. For SARS-CoV-2, everyone is susceptible to infection. This will not leave anyone untouched in 20 years' time. We will all have had some SARS-CoV-2 infection. It might be mild, it might be severe. Vaccines are not new. For a long time, they have helped reduce the burden of disease, diseases like smallpox, polio and measles. In fact, since 1932, Australians have rolled up their sleeves for community vaccination programs. We know vaccines help the immune system develop protection from illness and also prevent infectious diseases. As Burnett's Professor Caroline Homer reminds us, we even vaccinate pregnant mums and bubs. We vaccinate women for other things in pregnancy, whooping cough, flu. We vaccinate their babies against hepatitis B. Midwives are good at vaccination. This is How Science Matters, a Burnett Institute podcast. I'm Tracy Parrish. Throughout this series, you'll meet some of Australia's visionary scientific thinkers. You'll find out what keeps them awake at night as they grapple with the pandemic and how science is playing a leading role in shaping our response. My co-host is Professor Brendan Crabb, head of the Burnett Institute, a microbiologist, malaria researcher and one of the best minds in infectious diseases and global health. Today, a burning question. Are vaccines the silver bullet? The vaccines are the silver bullet for sure. We've got to get everyone vaccinated or as many people as we can who are willing to take the vaccine. I think the risk of infection is obviously massively reduced once you've been vaccinated. I'm Heidi Drummer and I'm Program Director for Disease Elimination. Well, it is an exciting time. I think it's been an incredible journey over the past year for vaccines in general, seeing so many vaccines not only developed but actually going through the entire life cycle of a vaccine from phase one all the way through to registration. And what that means for the future of other infectious diseases is enormous, of course. And being a vaccine expert is now popular 
people want to know about it. That yeah. wasn't always the case, though, was it? <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, everybody wants to know. Every dinner party conversation centres around, well, what's going on in the vaccines and what's new? What can you tell us? What should we be getting? Should we get this vaccine or that vaccine? I spent the first few months of the pandemic trying to water down expectations of saying, look, there's going to be a lot of effort in this field, but we're not certainly going to get one. And if we do get one, it might not be very good. And yet here we are with this sort of what looks like a plethora of riches, if that's a phrase. Does that take you by surprise? A lot of diseases like the low-hanging fruit, vaccines had already been developed against those. So what we were left with are really troublesome ones like malaria, hepatitis C, HIV, where vaccine development has been intractable and gone on for years. And we were all feeling like, will we ever have a vaccine for these diseases? So when SARS-CoV-2 came along, we were a little bit cautious about over-promising and under-delivering potentially on what could happen when these vaccines went into humans. Now, luckily, it's all turned out beautifully, really, and we couldn't have hoped for better, not just to have one vaccine registered for use in humans, but a whole plethora of them. I mean, that's been incredible to witness. Why? What's different about those that we have trouble with, HIV, hep C, malaria, at that high level and the virus that causes COVID that's allowed this to work? They're very different pathogens, obviously. For the viral pathogens, they've been in the human population for quite a long time. They've had time to really adapt to being in humans. They know how to evade our immune response, so it's not easy to actually generate immunity to HIV and hepatitis C. It's very difficult to conduct a clinical trial for both of those pathogens because you need to recruit tens and tens of thousands of people to actually demonstrate that your vaccine's efficacious. There aren't any easy animal models to test vaccines in for those pathogens. So your really only option is to go straight into a human study. And there's a lot of risk associated with doing that. So you can spend a long time optimising your vaccine candidate before you actually get into a clinical trial. And that costs a lot of money, so there's a shortage of investment for some vaccines. HIV's had the benefit of billions of dollars invested in it, but it still hasn't come up with anything promising yet. So it's really complex, whereas for SARS-CoV-2, there's the spike protein, it's never been in humans before, and the benefit of doing a clinical trial in a pandemic is there's no shortage of new cases. So we were able to really rapidly understand whether these vaccines worked or not. When did you realise this is going to be a bit more of a thing than just a bad flu as people were talking about? Obviously, as a scientist, you knew so much more and obviously someone working in vaccines as well. But there must have been a moment where you thought, this is really quite serious. We need to find a vaccine and we need to find it in a hurry. I think for me, the penny dropped around the middle of January 2020. I was listening to a news report coming out of China and what was going on, and I thought, this is it. This is going to be a problem. And What flagged it in your head? The increase in the number of cases every day, the fact that we were still allowing flights in and out of China at that time, which clearly gave the virus opportunity to seed in multiple countries around the world, which is exactly what it did. We could still probably have gotten on top of it, I think, at that point, if we had have been more aggressive about shutting down air travel around the world. 
because I think that was really the mosquito in this case. To draw the analogy with malaria, the aeroplane was the mosquito that travelled this virus all around the world. I still can't believe, and I have been involved in vaccines, not as intensely as you, but my whole scientific career, to have it in people in a year, what allowed that to happen? How did we get there so fast? For a number of different platforms, mRNA, the viral vectored platforms in particular, they didn't come out of nowhere. We have been using those platforms for 20, 30 years and using them for different diseases, mostly in preclinical studies. Phase one studies had been done and even up to phase three for some of the viral vectored studies to show that these platforms worked. But they'd never been to the point where they're actually licensed for use in humans. So a lot of the groups and the vaccine manufacturers who switched to COVID at that time were able to just swap in the gene for the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2 and immediately hit the ground running by manufacturing the vaccine and getting it into humans very, very quickly. For BioNTech, for example, they had been working on this mRNA vaccine for 30 years and they partnered with Pfizer because they had the manufacturing and then the distribution side of things that was their speciality, whereas BioNTech were like the discoverers and the early stage scientists. So the, putting the two of them together gave them the whole package that they needed to actually advance that Pfizer vaccine all the way through. And then the next thing that happened was as soon as they had initiated the phase one, they were already planning and getting ethics approval for the phase two and the phase three. So everything just went one after the other. Normally what would happen is you'd do phase one maybe for three or six months, you'd review the data, then you'd have to raise money and you'd go to phase two, so you'd have a bit of time loss there. It's really shown us that investment in vaccines is a huge part of the equation. While the speed of vaccine development for COVID-19 has amazed even the most seasoned of scientists, the big question is, why haven't we seen this pace and resolve when it's come to other infectious diseases? Perhaps the answer is, it hasn't always been a sexy vote-winning area to invest in. The issue is, who's being infected? And for SARS-CoV-2, everyone is susceptible to infection. This will not leave anyone untouched in 20 years' time. We will all have had some SARS-CoV-2 infection. It might be mild, it might be severe. But for something like hepatitis C, HIV, malaria... People put them in boxes. So malaria affects people in tropical areas, mosquito-borne disease. So, oh, it doesn't affect us, it affects them. And for hepatitis C, you can say, well, this is a disease of people who are injecting drug users or who don't have access to clean blood supply or clean medical equipment. So again, it's not us, it's them. Similarly, HIV, it's us and it's them. And I think that definitely impacts our ability to raise enough money for these diseases so that we do get vaccine development accelerated. 
And there's also other options. So for HIV, we now have people living with HIV, people on treatment who live the same lifespan as people who don't have HIV. So there are options. And similarly for HCV, you have direct acting antiviral therapy. And so a lot of people make the argument, well, if it's so difficult to develop a vaccine for those diseases, why don't we just invest that money in other prevention strategies, bed nets, PrEP, et cetera, to prevent the infection rather than investing in vaccines. I think here we're looking at an infection that will eventually reach everyone. So really the need for a vaccine is just so much higher. It's up there with measles or smallpox. Do you think people realise that it might reach everyone? I think there needs to be a bit of a change in public perception on this. I think the vaccines are the silver bullet for sure. We've got to get everyone vaccinated or as many people as we can who are willing to take the vaccine. I think the risk of infection is obviously massively reduced once you've been vaccinated. But we can't say in 10 or 20 years' time that a variant might come along where our vaccines aren't fully protective and we may get a mild case of COVID. Hopefully we won't progress to a severe form of COVID, but it's like the flu. If you get a flu vaccine, I have no expectation that I won't get influenza this year, but I will have an expectation that I won't spend two weeks in bed doing absolutely nothing with a high temperature for two weeks. I have an expectation that I might have some mild form of flu. So I think that change in people's mindset needs to occur. This issue of effectiveness, you mentioned severe disease, infection, transmission. How effective are they? Where's the silver bullet aspect that you're most confident about? Where are there still the uncertainties? Well, I definitely think there's incredibly good evidence coming out of England, Scotland, Israel, of the effectiveness of both the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca vaccine for preventing hospitalisation. Severe disease, definitely a massive reduction, 90% for Pfizer plus, probably around 85% AstraZeneca. When we get down to transmission, that's where we're still uncertain. How effective are the vaccines at actually preventing transmission? And one of the difficulties of that is, of course, how do you study that? You'd have to do that in households. Find people who are infected and look at transmission in the household amongst the vaccinated people. So it's a really difficult study to do. Then, of course, we've got the variants that are emerging around the world, which also impact that equation. So what we understand today might not be true tomorrow. So many new buzzwords, efficacy, mRNA, have all come into our vocabulary over the last 12 months in particular. The efficacy of these vaccines, people pin their hopes on one that might be 85% efficacy up against 90% efficacy? I think it's incredibly difficult to compare efficacy in one study versus another study. The studies are done at different times, in different countries. People have used different endpoints. There hasn't been a consistent 
method of doing the clinical trials around the world. And I guess that would be one of the take-home messages we would say is that we need to really early on in a new pandemic decide what are the endpoints for our clinical trials and tell everyone to use the same one so we can actually compare this. But even when you do that, we've seen that variants are emerging around the world independently of one another. And not all of the early studies were actually looking at what were the infections? Did every infection get sequenced? Do we actually know? So it's difficult to compare across studies, I think. Where I think I have more confidence is in the effectiveness reports that are coming out of, say, England, where they're actually using AstraZeneca and Pfizer in huge population numbers, where you can really start to compare. While the efficacy of vaccines has been top of mind, there's been another curveball. Many different strains of COVID-19 circulating around the world. The World Health Organization classifies these variants as variants of interest and variants of concern. Variants of interest have properties, have mutations that have been identified that need further study. Variants of concern have demonstrated changes. For example, you may have increased transmissibility, there may be a change in disease presentation or severity, or there may be a change in our ability to control the virus with public health and social measures, or the use of diagnostics, therapeutics, and vaccines. While viruses constantly change through mutation, in this pandemic, the most concerning variants have been Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, and now Delta Plus. So, will these variants outrun the vaccines? Can you tell us a little bit about what variants are, how they've come about, and where they sit on your concernometer barometer and crystal balling a bit? Why have they come about, and are they really a spanner in the works as far as the vaccine program's concerned? So, variants occur because the virus itself has a limited capacity to correct errors in its genome when it replicates. So it will naturally generate these errors. It's a bit like a random number generator in a way. And some of the mistakes it makes when it replicates its genome might actually turn out to be beneficial for the virus. So it might actually give the virus an advantage in terms of its ability to attach to our respiratory tract cells and infect us, and or it could actually have a benefit in terms of being missed by our immune system. So our immune response that we've generated previously, either that's from a previous infection or it could be through vaccination, doesn't recognise that variant as effectively. And so the virus has this ability to expand that population of viruses that our immune response hasn't recognised. So Darwinian evolution we are watching. Basically, that's it. It's Darwin in action and it's happening on a microsecond scale at the moment. Do you see them as having personalities? (laughs) I guess... In the way um, that they behave? The beta variant would be the Voldemort personality, (laughs) I think, on my barometer at the moment. I see the alpha variant as being a modest change to the virus in the broad context now that we see these. It did seem to give the virus an ability to be more transmissible, but it hasn't had such a big impact on vaccine efficacy. The beta variant, on the other hand, 
has a couple of mutations in there that are particularly worrisome that really knock out our ability of the antibodies that we generate, either through natural infection or vaccination, to recognise that variant. On the other hand, the Delta variant is somewhere in the middle. It is definitely looking more transmissible, but the effectiveness of the vaccine still only seems to be modestly effective. So that's somewhere in the middle, I think. Your horror scenario is a mixture of the transmissibility increase in Delta and the immune evasion of Beta. Yeah, yeah. That would be pretty bad, I think, for vaccines. If that combination were to come up, a Beta-Delta hybrid virus of some description. What are some of the vaccine processes or changes to what we originally thought might work that we might have to adapt? Is the variant going to outrun us or can the vaccines deal with it? I think the first thing is we need to basically adopt what we've done with influenza where we have ongoing monitoring of viruses that are emerging around the world and adapt the vaccine. We don't know yet how often, but let's say annually at the moment, we might think while the pandemic's raging, we might want to think about doing an update annually. That would allow us to create a new vaccine that's matched to the current variant of concern and we could then give people booster shots. Where I think the difficulty currently sits is how long are you going to test and what are you going to test for each of those new vaccines that you develop? With influenza, we don't currently test any of the annual update vaccines. They get made, they get straight into people, no questions asked. The efficacy will be what it is and the safety we know. So we just go ahead and make the new influenza update every year. But for this, we're not quite at that point yet. We're still doing quite extensive immunogenicity trials with the variants, as I understand it. And we need to come to some sort of agreement about what is the minimum requirement so that we can minimise the amount of time we spend testing vaccines before we offer people a booster shot. I expect we will all have a booster shot at some point in the next year to update our immunity to match it to what's circulating um, around the world. And they may be mix and match vaccines. That's the other question we need to think about. If I've had AstraZeneca, can I get a Pfizer booster shot in a year's time or a Moderna booster shot? And what do you think? Will we? I think that would be ideal, actually, because... One of the limitations of all of the viral vectored vaccines is that we actually develop immunity to the viral vector itself, which actually then dampens our ability to boost that response in the future. We know that spacing the AstraZeneca vaccine three months apart increases efficacy, and we think it's because our immunity to the viral vector actually drops a bit and it gives us a window where we can really boost the response more effectively. So similarly, if you've had two shots of AstraZeneca, you may have quite significant immunity to the viral vector. So it might be good to actually switch the vaccine for that third shot that you get or the fourth shot so that you have that boosting capability. Now, that's not relevant for the mRNA vaccines because there's no viral vector. You're not developing immunity to anything other than the spike protein itself. So for those vaccines, you can probably just think about getting a third shot 
of the same vaccine, and I understand those trials are already underway in the US, to give people that third shot. And that's another way, actually, of boosting your immunity by using the same vaccine a third time actually elevates your immunity even higher and gives you that protection against the variants. Globally, the vaccine rollout has been anything but streamlined. We've seen immense logistical challenges, often with patchy outcomes and inequity. Social media chatter has reinforced vaccine nationalism, fear and discrimination. So, what does this all mean for vaccine confidence? At the moment in the US, they've approved Johnson & Johnson, Moderna and Pfizer and AstraZeneca is a vaccine that hasn't been approved yet. But they are actually saying to people, well, you've got the AstraZeneca vaccine, therefore you can't come to a rock concert. But that could just be a semantic issue, really, because the vaccine hasn't been approved yet by the FDA. Once it is approved, perhaps they could go to the rock concert. But it is an interesting question about how we operate as a global citizen in the future if we're trying to travel around the world and perhaps I want to go to Israel on a holiday and I've had the AstraZeneca vaccine, would I be able to travel into Israel? I think there needs to be some global agreement reached about this that we need to accept that different vaccines have been used and as long as anyone is vaccinated, they should be able to travel freely. Now that raises, of course, the question of do we have vaccine passports, which I think is another minefield really to navigate through and not one that I have an easy answer for. There are pros and cons to those vaccine passports. And what about if you've had Sputnik? Oh, Sputnik's great. I'd have Sputnik tomorrow. I think it's a terrific vaccine and I think this is another thing we need to really review perhaps a bit of vaccine nationalism here that just because the vaccine was developed in Russia doesn't mean it's any lesser a vaccine than the one that was developed in the US. It actually has shown very good efficacy right up there with Pfizer and Moderna. We still don't just click our fingers and get the vaccine we want or the whole suite of them. And we've got money. Is it one of the richest countries per person in the world? What is it about making a vaccine? Why don't we just make them all here? What is it that makes it so tough for us to just get our 40 million doses of X or Y when we want them? Yeah, I think our only vaccine manufacturer in Australia is CSL, and they've done an amazing job being able to so quickly switch their manufacturing capacity and capability towards the AstraZeneca vaccine. We don't have a big enough population, I think, to support multiple CSL-sized vaccine manufacturers in Australia. So it's an incredibly specialised, expensive, complex facility that needs to be built. We've been able to import most of our vaccines from other manufacturers around the world. We've never been challenged like this before to make enough vaccines for the globe all at once on top of our existing manufacturing requirements for all the other vaccines we need to keep immunising people with. And so much depends on the supply chain too, when the EU decided to block the fact that we were having vaccines coming to Australia. Yeah. And so I think there needs to be a rethink about this, not just for vaccines, but for so many things that we use on a day-to-day -day basis in Australia is having that in-country 
capacity and capability to manufacture products that we need, particularly in an emergency situation like this. And I also think we need not just large-scale manufacturing, but we need to actually support researchers who are working on all the other diseases where they just want a phase one trial to get that really essential data to know whether their vaccine is safe and whether it generates an immune response in people before they try and ask for big amounts of money to do the phase two. Take us inside the lab and explain what's in it. (laughs) So (laughs) what's actually in a vaccine? Is it like a car where there's different components and I know different car manufacturers are having trouble at the moment because they can't get certain electronic components, for example, which is just holding up all production. Some of those ingredients as such need to come from overseas or can we produce them ourselves. What's in it? What's in the recipe, Heidi? (laughs) You usually start with the sequence of the target protein that you want to generate immune response to. You might choose to put that sequence in a viral vector, for example, like an adenovirus vector. Is a vector like a transportable third party? It is a bit like a car. You sit in the car and you put that car in a garage that replicates the car. (laughs) Wouldn't that be good? (laughs) Yeah. So you've got your viral vector. You then put it into a tissue culture, which is just cell line that you use to actually amplify that viral vector. So it goes through a whole series of processes that purify it from all the impurities that you have in your tissue culture experiment. You then take that purified product and you would use that to immunise. Now, normally we would immunise animals to determine whether that vaccine actually generates an immune response at all and understand how many doses you need. Then you might actually go back to the beginning and go, well, look, that didn't work particularly well. I'm going to change something about that sequence to emphasise this region where I really want the antibodies to stick to. And so you might go all the way back to the beginning and re-engineer the whole thing, put it back into the car and put the car in the garage and make lots of new cars and then do the immunisation experiment again. And you might go through that cycle five, six, ten, twenty times before you actually land on the final car that you want to drive out of the garage. (laughs) How do you upscale that? And do it well. And will it change every time you're going to create a new vaccine booster next year? Will the parameters change, which adds more complexity? So if you've said you've used the vaccine and you've done your stability testing at minus 80, and that's all the data you've got, then that becomes the requirement that the TGA will put on the storage and the use of the vaccine. So you need to go back and actually show that, yes, I've got evidence now that I can store this Pfizer vaccine at four degrees for a week and it still works the same way as I would have used it if it had been at minus 80 and I thought it and put it in someone straight away. So it's actually evidence-based and you need to generate that evidence and present it to the regulatory agency for approval before they'll actually say, okay, you can now store your vaccine at a GP clinic for a week at four degrees. So it's not... It's not magic, but it's also not witchcraft. It is an evidence-based approach that's required. It's a great line of questioning because we talk a lot about what the different sort of vaccines are and the innovation behind the mRNA or behind the adenovirus vector. And that's like crucial but first base. What we don't talk about is how do you make a vaccine 
exactly the same way in different factories all over the world, exactly the same way every time in a way that's perfectly contaminant-free and going to behave. It is really important, I think, everyone understands that there's so much goes in to being reliably able to put something in your arm that's the same here in Melbourne as it was in the UK as it is in Israel and, and so on. The pressure on scientists to solve this global pandemic is unrelenting. Variants are emerging, vaccine development is complex. For those scientists on the front line of vaccine discovery, it must sometimes feel like there's just no off switch. For Heidi, it's double the trouble. She's married to another scientist. In this COVID world, together they live, eat and breathe the science and work as a close unit running a lab. So... How's that working out? Oh, it's been fun, actually, because we both got right into the lab work to really accelerate what we were doing and create a whole suite of new reagents. And we basically created this really big encyclopedia of reagents for the lab within just a few months. I mean, we're still creating them because we're trying to keep up with the variants now and with the new antibodies that have been discovered. So we're constantly making new things, but we don't go home and necessarily talk shop. We just have normal lives. Occasionally, we're looking on the phone at a new paper. I'll just send you a new paper, you know. (laughs) Carl, how much are you sitting there watching a movie and then you think, look, I've been thinking about that variant. What do you think about such and such? (laughs) Is it all pervasive? Very few scientists can turn off. Yeah, I guess so. Andy has a lot of other interests, though. So he's very diverse. I'm probably a bit more of the person who works a lot at home. I have also found I've had to find ways of switching off, though, because it can become an obsessive thing. So I've had to take up things that I'm not particularly good at. and Not knitting? No, painting. Painting by numbers? Or no, just, no, just freehand painting. Oh. And it's not about how good I am, but it's about that mindfulness of just taking your mind off work for half an hour and doing something different. Because scientists, I think, are an obsessive personality type in general. I'm trying to say as little, Segway as, to Brendan. <laughs> say as, little as possible about this as I, I even feel like I have to sneak work in at home so that it's not noticed. And for Heidi and myself, you go into crisis mode doing what we can for the pandemic. But it's also a very exciting time where science is all of a sudden the first thing any news piece, any newspaper, anyone talks about. And of course, the science itself is moving very fast. So it's a really, really exciting time at the same time. I heard you once say, Heidi, that what Australia needed was a vaccine rock star Mm. like Anthony Fauci. Mm -hmm. Have we found one and are you willing to be it? I don't think I'm the right person to be, but I think Brendan's doing a great job. I think definitely we need leadership in this area to really convey a clear message on the vaccines, how they work, safety concerns. And really, I think we need much sexier ad campaigns to encourage people to get vaccinated. There's still a lot of hesitancy out there, which concerns me. And even in the countries that have done an amazing job vaccinating people, they reach about 60%. And then there's this plateau. There's probably about 20% of people who are just really resistant to getting a vaccine. 
and are hard to reach. And it's interesting to watch the US sort of tackle this, paying people to get vaccine or excluding people who haven't been vaccinated from events. And why does that extra 20% or so matter? Why do you think that is? Well, if you've got 20% of a population who aren't vaccinated, that's a big number of people. We've seen how quickly this virus spreads and can find those people. And with the R factor going up, creeping up all the time, that becomes an even bigger concern. We probably need to reach at least 80% of people fully vaccinated to start thinking about we've got herd immunity here. If we've got 20% of 100 million, that's 20 million people who are susceptible. In 300 million, it's 60 million people. That's a massive number of people. And that could really put a burden on healthcare systems. And it just seeds the source of new variants. The whole idea is to suppress replication everywhere, in every country as much as possible, so that the vaccines we've got today will work tomorrow. We can't keep chasing the virus. What's keeping you up at night? I think the variants are a concern and the lack of vaccines going to low and middle income countries is a big concern. I've still been a bit shocked by the degree of vaccine inequity, the difference. We're normally better at that gap, even though it's always a big gap. Is that how you see it? It's wagons around a campfire at the moment. I think countries are going, we've got to get everyone in our country vaccinated. And you can understand that. But we've really got to start thinking about how are we going to get Africa vaccinated? And how are we going to get the rest of Asia vaccinated? It's a big concern. And I think the other concern is sequencing capability in those countries. We've got to make sure that they're sequencing the viruses that are circulating there so we understand what variants could be travelling out of those countries and reaching us in the future. So replication there is obviously bad for them, but it's bad for us too? It's bad for us. It's super bad for us. They're the viruses of the future. So wherever you've got high rates of transmission, that's where you're going to get the concerning variants that could emerge, and you don't want them to emerge in the first place. So getting everyone vaccinated is absolutely essential. Heidi, we're in a really unusual circumstance in Australia. Relative to other countries, we've had this zero COVID strategy, no tolerance for COVID in the community. And of course, that's had its huge benefits, no question about it, from a health point of view, economically and and so on. But as we sit now, we in Australia have a very low level of vaccine coverage relative to some of our peer countries around the world. How do those two things fit together? Are we more exposed or is it a good thing? Yeah, I think we've definitely fallen into a mindset where we think we've got time because it's not here. So I think definitely the COVID zero thing has impacted our psychology about when we need to go and get vaccinated. How do you tackle that? It's really difficult, but I think the outcome has to be we want to be able to live the life we had two years ago. And the only way we're going to be able to achieve that is if we're all vaccinated. And that has to be the message people are given. But people need to understand that 
we can't continue living in this bubble. It's unsustainable for our society to live like this. It's ruining so many sectors of our businesses, our education system, and just generally how we live our lives has been severely impacted by this. Some people are hesitant to have the vaccine, as we said. There's anti-vaxxers, and this is just another evolution in their thinking. But then there's conspiracy theorists. How do we help change views? And do we have a right to do that? And can science change the view of an anti-vaxxer? Well, there's not just anti-vaxxers. There's people who think COVID is a conspiracy theory. And we've got a neighbour in our street who we have conversations with about this topic. He does not believe in COVID. He thinks it's, you know, a government conspiracy to control us, etc. So I think those people are probably the hardest group to change their beliefs because they probably already had those beliefs. But they don't become so important if you reach the rest of the population who you can actually convince to have the vaccine. And just to bring you back full circle, do you believe the vaccines are the silver bullet for any normality in life moving forward? I think they are. They may not be the total solution right now. I think in countries with high levels of transmission, I'd like to see a combination of masks and vaccines in use until they've reached a good level, at least 60, 70 percent people vaccinated. Masks reduce the viral load significantly. You're reducing your risk of getting infected. We haven't heard that discussed a lot. Some of the surges might come when we relax the restrictions on mask wearing after we're vaccinated because we're assuming that the vaccine's going to do everything. But masks could perhaps bridge that gap and further increase the efficacy of the vaccines to do all those other things that we'd like it to do. What we do know about vaccines is that they work. They prevent disease and sickness. But to do that, we need a large percentage of the population vaccinated to achieve herd immunity. High vaccine uptake, along with other effective public health measures, are our strongest weapons against this contagious enemy, COVID-19. How Science Matters was produced by Written and Recorded. This is a Bernard Institute podcast. For over 30 years, we've been at the forefront of infectious disease research, public health and national health security. COVID-19 is a complex global health challenge. So join us in the fight against the pandemic and help us remind everyone how science matters. If you like this episode, please keep an eye out for our next one. No one is safe until everyone is safe. To hear more, search for How Science Matters on the Burnett Institute website or wherever you get your podcasts. And please share this episode with two friends or more. If they're new to podcasts, show them how to follow our show. We want this podcast to spread like a virus, but in a good way. I'm Tracy Parrish. See you next time. This podcast series was recorded during June and July 2021. In this evolving pandemic, please search for the latest official coronavirus advice in your area.